You're listening to Fundshack. The world's changed hugely in the past year or so, and private equity investors as business owners now face an astonishing level of uncertainty that amplifies the risks, but also the potential opportunities of investment. Today, I'm talking with someone uniquely well-placed to comment on this. Alastair Lester is CEO of Aon's M&A and Transaction Solutions business in EMEA. This conversation was everything I hoped it would be and much more. So I think you'll enjoy it. Alistair, you are the CEO of Aon's M&A business in EMEA, but it's not your first bout at Aon, is it? I believe you started in the graduate scheme some, I guess, 25 years ago and in the mid 90s working for private equity clients. And I wanted to start by asking you, um, to what extent has the insurance services industry over that kind of quite long time frame um, responded to the, the pace of change in the world and the risks that businesses and private equity firms face today? Ross, well, firstly, thank you for having me. And secondly, uh, thank you for reminding me that it's 25 years and then defi- describing that 25 years as quite a long time frame, but um, <laughs> <laughs> which it is. Um, and, and look, and there's been a huge, it's, it's fascinating, actually. I'll describe, maybe respond in two ways. There's been a huge amount of change, of course, in the world. The insurance industry is not renowned for being particularly speedy uh, in terms of pace of change, but actually there's been a pretty significant amount of change within the insurance industry and particularly within the part of the insurance industry uh, and the broader professional services aspect of our world that faces off to the M&A and private equity uh, ecosystem. Um, And uh, when I think back to being told that what we did for private equity firms was a niche part of our industry and a niche part of a firm that I previously worked for, and I have only worked for, for a couple of them, um, then uh, compare it to where we are now, where it's very much seen as a core part of our business, like any other professional services firm, frankly, and financial services firm. You know, the, 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 the scale of the relationship between the banking industry, the professional services industry in the broadest sense, whether that's legal accounting, management consulting, and the private equity and, and wider alternative asset and financial sponsor community is enormous. And I think we as an industry are really only just starting to um, embrace the scale of that relationship opportunity in, in, in the same way in the last three, four, five years. A couple of good examples of what's really driven that, uh, Ross. Um, you know, you go back 25 years and if I said to a client, um, or I go back two, three years, I said to a client, what is you think a firm like Aon could do to help you? And I said to a PE firm, what do you think a firm like Aon could do to help you? They might say, well, you know, you, you, we talked to you on the limited partner side, you've got a big investment management uh, arm of your business. And we talked to them about LP investments, or you are an LP in our fund. Um, or, or they might likely have said insurance due diligence, and they might've even said it a bit like that. Uh, and they might have said something like, more recently, this warranty and indemnity insurance, or as we call it in the US, reps and warranties insurance product, uh, which has genuinely exploded in the last four to five years in, in utilization in PE. Um, and they might have said something as sophisticated or as uh, eloquent as some stuff in our portfolio companies um, without really describing or defining what stuff is. And, and yes, look, we do all of those things, but what's really exciting for us is our ability over the last few years as our industry has evolved and as Aon has evolved to bring multiple advisory capabilities, multiple advisory work streams to life on the one hand uh, and multiple or an increased number of financially motivated insurance instruments to bear on the other hand and much more sophistication and science around how we really do develop and deliver value in the portfolio so that actually when you have, have that conversation now with certain clients who've been on that journey over the last three, four years, they would absolutely recognize our industry and particularly our firm, I think, as being um, leading the charge in areas like cyber consulting, in, like, in intellectual property consulting and advisory and valuation, of course, in risk and insurance, in the broad set of human capital from retirement benefits, but also talent reward and compensation aspects of deals. Um, and then on the instrument side, looking at the adjacencies to warranty, warranty and indemnity insurance, like 
known contingent risk insurance, be that tax insurance, be that litigation insurance. We've pioneered the, the, the product called judgment preservation insurance. Um, we, we've pioneered the ability to wrap insurance around your intangible assets, your intellectual property. Uh, and when you wrap insurance around issues, be they intangible assets and intellectual property or um, successful judgments you've secured in court, you can potentially use those um, instruments as collateral, which enable you then to access different forms of financing. So really this, the, the big change has been this realization, institutional and industrial realization, that there is, a, there is an opportunity to marry up what has traditionally been seen as a relatively lazy, perhaps enormous pool of insurance capital with other parts of the capital markets and bridge the two in a way that drives value into M&A deals and particularly private equity deals, because as you and I both know, private equity are just so hungry for what they call new technology and new ideas. They're very, very fast adopters. And if they use something once, they'll look for ways of using it again and again and again in different situations. And that's been a fantastic accelerator for what we do. Sounds like a hugely exciting time. You've given me a huge amount of information. You've got a proliferation of services. Um, for people that aren't Aon clients, though, um, can you just maybe help us understand why Aon is providing the services that it is providing? What's the, what's the journey from your insurance services capabilities to the, the services that you've currently, that, that you've just outlined? Great question, Ross. And, and look, the, the, the short answer, and I'll try and be shorter this time around, is that, you know, we are, we're, we live in the world of risk right? The world lives in the world of risk, but Aon as a firm is all about risk. We are a risk business. Insurance is an instrument that can help clients manage their risk. Um, but what we don't do is just deliver insurance products. We also deliver a, a range of advisory capabilities that help clients understand, identify, understand, and mitigate risk. Insurance instruments are just one part of the mitigation aspect of how you deal with risk. Every deal that any client does, they price risk into their deal and they deal with risk in a deal in different ways. Maybe they price chip, right? Price chips are a result of people identifying risk they're not comfortable with and, and the price chips is one way of dealing with that. Maybe they seek contractual recourse against the seller, against the counterparty. And maybe that contractual recourse is is somehow secured through escrows or some, some other form of collateral. Um, maybe uh, as a buyer, if I identify risk in a deal, I defer an element of the consideration to see if that risk crystallizes. And if it does, I protected myself because I'm not having to pay my deferred element of the consideration. All of those things are well-established approaches to dealing with risk in a, in a deal. Those risks need to be identified for people to be able to understand them and then, and then come up with solutions for them. But actually, the really exciting point is we think those three buckets of price chipping, contractual recourse, defer consideration, they're all perfectly valid ways of dealing with it. But none of them are actually optimal ways of dealing with risk in a transaction. Optimal ways of dealing with risk in a transaction can include um, solving them through just getting more insight into those specific issues so you get more comfort with them. Um, and we can provide that in a range of ways across people risk and cyber risk and intellectual property risk, et cetera, et cetera. But secondly, by introducing, as I've said, an insurance instrument, which can take that risk away in a far more attractive way and deal with those potential risks in a far more attractive way, potentially than price chipping or deferring or getting contractual recourse against the counterparty. Because as we all know, what sellers want to do in any deal is receive maximum day one unencumbered proceeds. And any of the three traditional ways of pricing risk is not maximizing your unencumbered proceeds on day one of the deal. And all this kind of moves you further towards, I suppose, insurance being a purely defensive product towards kind of you've got a, a clearer line of sight to enhancing returns through all of this, I guess. I, and look, thank you. You've teed it up beautifully. So we, we talk about what we do as securing investments and enhancing returns. I mean, that is, that is our little strap line, if you like. The securing investments piece is around, we think with our advisory capabilities, we can give you much more insight into what you're getting into. We think with some of the core traditional insurance uh, solutions that are out there, very plain vanilla traditional insurance solutions, you can secure that investment. Um, but actually, going to your point on enhancing returns, we think that we are 
able to deliver these structured insurance instruments across a wide range of areas, including structured credit and, and tax and litigation, et cetera, that I've said, whereby spending a pound, a dollar or a euro on that instrument, you are realizing or recognizing multiples of that pound, dollar or euros, either in the enterprise value or somewhere in the capital structure of the transaction. That is a very different way to think about insurance, where for most of us, including people who live and breathe it, you know, renewing our car insurance, our home insurance, or even our business insurance every year, what you're really looking for is a way of reducing the cost of insurance because you see it as a sunk cost. You don't see it as a return generating instrument. Whereas with a lot of what we're doing, it's spend a dollar or a euro or a pound on that instrument and you will see a multiple of that somewhere in your enterprise value or capital structure. Before I ask you to give us a few more specific examples of how this, this can work in your advisory capabilities, maybe if I could step back just one more time and think about how the nature of risks have evolved. Um, maybe it's a little bit obvious to say, but it seems to me that risks over the, say that 25 year period have gone from being relatively tangible, relatively geographically constrained to being much more intangible, much more distributed across the world, uh, less physical, uh, and therefore just much more complex. And I suppose as a result of that, harder to quantify. Um, and, and I guess where there's complexity, there is opportunity, um, which is why, which is why it's, I guess it's logical for insurance providers to have expanded in this way. Uh, is that a reasonable reading of? I think that's, that's, a, that's a very astute reading, Ross. Um, and I think, you know, listen, why has Aon diversified outside of M&A and private equity? Why has Aon diversified its capability set for exactly those reasons? And if you, if you double click on intellectual property as an example and intangible assets as an example, you only have to look at the rotation, the huge rotation of the S&P 500 over the last 40 years, which has gone from being uh, completely dominated by assets, hard asset, tangible asset values and companies who operated in those areas to companies which are absolutely intangible asset rich and intangible asset based and intellectual property based. That is one of the reasons. And, and as a result, by the way, the insurance industry overall some argue has struggled to stay relevant, um, as relevant as it could have done. Growth of global insurance premiums has lagged global GDP growth for that reason, right? Because the insurance products are not as relevant as they need to be to what's going on in the world traditionally. Um, so Aon made a move into intellectual property by buying, and this is what Aon's done brilliantly, we have purchased uh, capability and talent in adjacent areas to us. So we bought a business, uh, which was one of the leading intellectual property consulting businesses. And then what we've done is we have worked with that business to deploy that capability into a private equity context. We've worked with that business to build insurance instruments that can deal with intangible risk and intangible assets in a way that wasn't previously being addressed. And we've gone one step further by helping to use both those things, the insights and the capability we have on the advisory side, the risk modeling, the quant capability we have um, on, the, on the valuation side to then build product, which is enabling and opening the door to IP rich companies to access financing using insurance as a collateral around their intellectual property in a way that's never been possible before, right? So, so that's an absolutely spot on. What Aon has done over the year, last five to 10 years is it's added inorganically uh, areas of talent and capability, whether it's in cyber, whether it's in intellectual property, whether it's in the talent world, we've added businesses and people who have brought different skill sets to our firm, many of whom, if not, if not you know, all of whom, have had zero exposure to the insurance industry before, right? But actually, by bringing these people into our industry, they are giving us perspectives on different emerging risks, which we're able to support clients from an advisory point of view uh, with, but also match those risks into the huge pool of insurance capital and start to build some new and evolved and developing insurance solutions that, that provide answers. Tell me a little bit more about the, the IP services then in the specific context of, let's say, the whole spectrum of venture capital and, and private equity. What type of business is it, is it most kind of useful for? So we think that one of the things we're most excited about is we've always had a relatively limited story for the VC end of the private equity and financial sponsor community. 
um, you know, you, you, some, some relevance, some individual products, traditional products, which get deployed on a relatively small scale, but actually nothing really truly value added. So what we've done with the intellectual property uh, business is we've developed uh, two, one, one principal area, which I think is very relevant for VCs. So we have an ability to um, value, map, identify, map, and value the unique intellectual property, particularly the patents, but not just the patents. It can be data, it can be trade secrets, et cetera, of individual companies. By doing so, we place a value on that, on that intellectual property uh, through a proprietary valuation methodology. We're not the only ones who value intellectual property. There are many people who do it, but we've, we've developed a proprietary valuation methodology. And look, by the way, the people who we have doing this, we have the former head of intellectual property at Philips in the Netherlands, global head of IP at Philips. We have the former general, of Pat general counsel for patents from Microsoft, right? People who honestly, if you ask them, would you ever, five years ago, can you ever see yourself working Aon? I didn't know who Aon was, who, who, who would, or would have said, absolutely not. Why would I, right? So we have some unbelievably deep talent in the IP space. I think we have more of the top 300 recognized global IP strategists working for Aon than there are any other company in the world. And, yeah. and no one would know that, right? Um, yeah. Recognized by the global IP community. And so we have a proprietary valuation methodology and, and, and that in itself has value. But here's the really unique thing we were able to do. We then spent a long time persuading the insurance industry of the efficacy of that valuation methodology. And there are many other parts of the capital markets ecosystem which rely on the underlying security of insurance to enable financing. If you look in the aircraft leasing space, residual value insurance on aircraft hull is, is, is a critical requirement for aircraft leasing. You know, financiers of aircraft leasing require certainty over what the, the aircraft may be worth at the end of the 10-year lease. And the way they've got that in the past is through residual value insurance. That provides the underlying security. <clears throat> really, what we're doing in intellectual property is a similar thesis. We are valuing the intellectual property through a proprietary methodology. We're then, we're then demonstrating the efficacy of that valuation to the insurance market, who are then wrapping an insurance policy around that value, not at 100 cents in the dollar, at a discount to, to, to the value, maybe 50 cents in the dollar. By wrapping insurance security around what were previously intangible assets, you are turning them into tangible collateral. And what can you do with tangible collateral is you can raise finance against it. So now we think we're inventing or pioneering at least a new potential way for firms who are in the maybe series B, series C stage to raise working capital and runway capital. Because up until today, the primary way for those firms to raise money has been to raise equity. Mm. Founders and owners don't like raising equity. It's dilutive, it's expensive, it's painful, all of those things. And actually being able to, or they go and raise venture debt, right? And venture debt performs an essential um, service, but also it's not, it's got a lot of complexity to it, venture debt. It's you know, almost equity-like in some of its structures, right? We think we have an instrument now which can enable you to access pretty straightforward, not cheap, but pretty straightforward debt secured against an insurance wrapper, which is wrapping your intangible assets. And we think by doing that, we are potentially reinventing how you finance early stage companies. And by the way, the British Business Bank wrote a, a paper probably two years ago saying, why can't banks recognize intangible assets more as collateral for financing? We think we are leading the answer to that question, which is, well, you can if you do it in this particular way. Um, so a completely new field of opportunity and an and area of um, value that we think we're bringing to, bringing to, to the table. So I assume that larger businesses with a large IP portfolio, they've got other financing options, right? They do so they, that's a yeah, 100%. That's a great question. But and yet, look, we also have clients who are approaching us and asking whether we can collateralize their IP portfolio for the purposes of satisfying pension trustees, right? For example. So, you know, we need to provide collateral to our pension trustees. Maybe this is a product that we could use to um, satisfy our pension trustees over pension liabilities, you know, and future pension contributions. We've got financial institutions who are approaching us and asking whether 
this is a product that they could use to satisfy some regulatory capital requirements. Right. So, you know, is this a product that could satisfy the banking regulators to a certain level that um, intellectual, if previously unrecognized intellectual property that they held in their business is now something they can collateralize and use to enhance their financing of, of whatever obligations they have. So it isn't just a venture answer, but we're seeing particular appetite and interest in the, in the venture back community in the early stage businesses area at the moment. So that's a great example of uh, allowing people to kind of focus on the upside and enhance their returns. Um, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about COVID, but obviously it's completely redefined and changed the nature of and scale of risk out there. Um, and so, I mean, that touch, touches on so many parts of, of business, but I'm thinking particular like cyber, for example, you've got companies with distributed workforces working from home. Um, I was speaking to a CEO the other day, who 90% of his employees, he's based in London, 90% of his employees are in India. Uh, and so, you know, he's geographically remote, can't get out to them very easily. All of these risks seem to be um, kind of not really thought of just a couple of years ago. And since you mentioned that the unifying factor is risk, I, I thought that um, I, I'd like your opinion on it. <laughs> so, look, we uh, I mean, again, very astute, Ross. We um, we we launched our cyber uh, M&A private equity focused business getting on for two years ago now. Um, and we did it for a couple of reasons. One, Aon itself, again, outside of private equity and M&A, had made an inorganic acquisition in a company called Strauss Freeberg. Strauss Freeberg was one of the leading global cyber risk consultancies. It grew up in the US. And, and again, you, I, I'd imagine if you spoke to many of the people within what used to be Strauss Freeberg, they had not had anything to do with the cyber insurance world. They were deep cyber risk consulting people. Um, so that came into Aon two or three years ago. And, and then we built a, a front, uh, a client facing um, delivery of some of the capabilities within that, within that business. But the way we did that is we actually bought across people from the big four who were providing private equity, cyber due diligence, which was just emerging two or three years ago. We bought some of those people across. And the exciting thing is, was we were able to persuade them of a couple of things, which I think we've proven out, which is, one, look, we have the in-house technical cyber capability. Look, we just bought this business called Strauss Freeberg and it's deep technical cyber risk capability. Um, but two, we also have in our industry a huge amount of data insight from cyber insurance. So we know what is happening in the cyber risk world because cyber insurers are paying claims for our clients. So we know what's, what's creating those claims and we know how much is being paid for those claims and how those claims are being managed and how the risk are being mitigated to, avoid, mitigated to avoid them happening again. You put together deep cyber technical expertise with quant data, true de rich data over what is actually going on in the cyber world, which is causing financial loss. And you've got a, you've got a unique, you've got a unique uh, skill set, right? So our cyber team actually very specific to private equity have built something called Portfolio Scanner. Portfolio Scanner is a, is a piece of proprietary tech which blends in some automated um, threat analysis, right, with a quant model. And it will tell you, and we've done this for a number of PE firms now, it will, you can run it at relatively low cost compared to the cost of getting a very expensive, perhaps, firm to come and run a six month cyber review across your portfolio. You can run it in very quick time automatically across your entire portfolio and it gives you a traffic light output of which firms in your portfolio need a closer deeper dive from a cyber risk point of view it's no guarantee that there's no problems in the ones that are green or amber but it will tell you from an outside in point of view an unobtrusive outside in point of view where we think based on outside threat analysis and industry sector knowledge and claim statistics from cyber insurance you should be going to look mr gp to double check that actually that particular firm is, is really doing what it should be around cyber risk. <clears throat> we actually ran that for a, fir a PE firm last year. And one of the firms that came out on the red of the traffic lights, we literally just reported to the sponsor. And just 10 days later, as we were going through the action plan, they had a ransomware attack, right? And that led into a huge recovery system and, and, and a recovery exercise and process 
where we had to support that sponsor uh, managed through and the, and the portfolio company managed through the ransomware attack. Now, again, no guarantee that if we run that exercise six months earlier, the ransomware attack wouldn't have happened. But certainly there would have been more awareness within that firm of the risks and, and hopefully some, some mitigating actions would have been taken. So that's a really, really good example. By the way, it, what's really powerful there is that is all consulting work but we're delivering technical and, and, and rich data insight in an, in an automated manner, in a highly efficient manner, real time, right? I mean, real time. We, this is stuff that we, you know, we are launching and delivering within three to four weeks to clients, not let's run a long cyber risk consulting project, which takes many months, because by the time, the speed of the world's changing so much that you know, in six, nine months time, it's a different threat, right? It's a different group of people. It's a different type of ransomware, whatever it is, you know, you need to be, keeping on top of this on a regular basis. So a lot of our PE funds now are actually running this cyber, the portfolio scanner on a uh, regular basis, be it six monthly or 12 monthly. And they run it, it's just a, it's a health check across their portfolio and it just helps them stay in touch with, with exactly what's going on. And you know, we were quite excited. We ran it for, and this is public, we ran it for Synven and Synven have actually reported within their ESG report. If you look at Synven's portfolio ESG report, you'll see we're mentioned and referenced in there as having run this process, which has enabled them to keep on top of the cyber risk aspects, which, by the way, feeds into ESG because it's just one of the multitude of things that is becoming so prevalent in the ESG world. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me, marrying the, the qualitative and the quantitative. I've, I've long felt that you have the cyber professionals who are focused on best practice and, and process. But you've also got the kind of the unknown quantitative part, which is the elephant in the room. And, uh, you know, companies that pay ransoms, they don't publicize it, of course. And I, and I one suspects, therefore, that it's a much, much bigger problem than most people realize had they had to send a press release out and it was in the media. It would be a realized as a huge problem. And so there's something of a disconnect between the scale of the problem and what to do about it. And it sounds like you're able to uh, contextualize the problem and then find the solution, which feels to me like um, where I'd want to be. Yeah, and look, I think just one thing I'd add is, is I've just talked about that in a portfolio context, which is critical. The other thing we're learning is fascinating, is our clients who go through that exercise looking inside the portfolio, across the portfolio, they almost without fail, if they aren't already, and not many are or haven't been, they then ensure that they implement pre-investment cyber due diligence as a specific work stream going forward, right? So when a lot of firms haven't been, or they felt that their ITDD covers cyber, IT and cyber DD are very different things, right? They're, they're close cousins, but they are distinctly different things. So we are seeing a generally a, a sort of a, let's make sure we're okay in the portfolio, wow, by the way, we've also got to make sure we're okay as we're going into new deals. And this whole work stream of cyber due diligence, which we think we're then evolving further into what we call digital and tech DD, where you're looking at, yes, the cyber risk, but you know, we had a client say to us not long ago, look, every deal is now a tech deal, right? doesn't matter whether you think you're buying a bunch of um, industrial factories across EMIR, it's they're tech enabled. So let's look at the the, the tech in that business and understand how risk exposed it is, what, where, the failing, where the failure points are. You know, we just brought a guy in from um, Turner and Townsend who are, you know, well-respected property consultants. Again, not an insurance guy. He's a risk consulting person, but he's able now to deliver his risk advice in a much more informed and contextual way because of the data and the insights we can provide from inside the industry. And by the way, I'd also add, one of the unique things we have as an industry is we can not only identify, advise, advise on how to mitigate, but we have this true, um, truly unique set of solutions, which is we can transfer, which is insurance. And that's why we're you know, bridging the advisory and the risk transfer together. So just so I've got the lexicon straight, you've got IT diligence, which is like your, your internal systems and processes and making sure they're, they're efficient and functioning. You've got cyber, which is like security and stopping attacks. And you've got digital and tech, which is you are- Performance, you are it's performance, it's, it's performance risk. You know? So we, you know, we, we, we ran a deal for a PE fund who was buying a, uh, a reasonably well-known real estate platform, right? And actually what they wanted to understand, or we helped them understand was 
how many of the hits on the platform were from bots and how many were genuinely uh, from independent consumers, right? Yeah. And whether the bots were for, and, and that goes to value, right? If all of a sudden people are valuing these businesses based on the number of hits, the number of users, number of unique users, are those unique users bots or are they consumers? And you're not going to pay someone for, for bot hits, right? You want to pay for the consumer hits. So it starts to become not just a risk issue, but also a valuation issue, which is exciting. What about um, what about people risk? Do you do anything in that domain? Obviously, there's a link with with cyber uh, and behavioral beha behaviors. Um, but but um, do you look at human capital? We so we do very broadly, and I think traditionally, again, when people thought, well, what would Aon do in the human capital space to help us? It would be well, we'll do some actuarial work on the pension plan, or we'll do some look at life and medical insurance and make sure that we're meeting employee benefit risk. But again, Aon bought a, a business not long ago, another example of our, our, our capability diversification called QT. Uh, it's now rebranded Aon Assessment Solutions. But QT, I mean, again, they are, when you meet them, they are a bunch of psychiatrists and, and psychologists, right? Um, and, and let me tell a little case study of how we, we work very closely with that capability. So we had an infrastructure client who was fund who was buying a a bus business right i mean lots of infrastructure funds buy bus businesses i think eqt have just bought a big one in the us from first group interesting little story so we were arranging motor insurance for the bus company and because they have to have it and one of the things that drives motor insurance is is driver safety right the price of motor insurance is driven by how safely how well do you train your drivers how safely do you train your drivers we bought in um, these Aon, our Aon uh, assessment colleagues to do some framework assessments and to create a framework for the type of personality that they wanted to hire and to maintain as bus drivers. And put it very crudely as a layman, you were looking for people who are less heavy and less aggressive on the accelerator, on the gas pedal, right? That's one of the key things. And there are, again, fascinating there are characteristics which are going to lend you to be more heavy or less heavy on the gas pedal. So that had two incredible benefits. One, by doing that and by demonstrating to the insurance company that they were hiring that sort of person, that puts the risk in a better light and it enables Aon to secure arguably a better price for the, the core old-fashioned motor insurance for the buses. But here's the other thing. You could also demonstrate how the fuel consumption of the fleet would reduce and the environmental positive environmental impact and of course the economic positive impact in terms of reduced gas bills and, and, and fuel bills for the bus fleet, right? So again, you're going to value in way more in, in more ways than just one, which is we can help you reduce your insurance premium. We can also help you reduce your operating costs through reduction of fuel consumption. And we can demonstrate that you're thinking about that through an ESG lens in a, in a world where those things are increasingly important, right? So it's a really good example of how We've just gone from being an insurance broker placing motor insurance to adding these other other elements to of value. Yeah, and, that, and that's amazing. And that comes from presumably the, the psychological or I don't know the exact phrase, but profiling of the people. It's profiling not, and not characteristics. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So when you know when you go and hire now a bus company, you need to hire people with these characteristics, which we have defined for you, and it's now built into your your recruitment processes. Yeah. That's, that's that's amazing. Is there anything else you're doing on in, on the people side with regard regards to um, with regards to risk? So I'm thinking of the the huge change that's that's happening in terms of uh, the work environment, and it's a difficult one to answer, of course, because no one really knows where we're going to end up in six months, let alone you know three or four years. Um, but I, I presumably you're doing some thinking on this area. Yeah, we are. Look, so we, again, our, we have an enormous human capital practice um, who stretch right across, you know, governance, board consulting, compensation, talent, etc. Um, and and we have we're one of the firms we, we sponsored um, in various countries, something called the Work Travel Convene. So we brought together in Australia and the US and the UK and different countries, large employers. And we've done that over the last 12 months. And this isn't, you know, in the private equity and M&A world, but this is more broadly as Aon. And what we try to do in the private equity community is then bring the conclusions and the insights that, that are being created from those sort of exercises into PE funds and into their portfolio. 
But the work travel convene is really trying to look in that crystal ball about where this is going. What are the implications for the workforce? What does that mean in terms of, you know, one of our big areas, of course, is, is terms and conditions of employment and benefit packages. And how do you construct compensation packages to reflect different working environments and all of those sorts of things. So look, a, a huge amount of work in progress on that. And I think a lot of clients um, increasingly looking for help in that area, because as you say, there's so much uncertainty about where it's going to go. And they've got to try and get some sort of sense of what the options might look like. Yeah, I think also the private equity firms, I mean, it's always been a people business, but I mean, you had the, the leverage wave and value creation wave. And I think from what I'm hearing, people are increasingly focusing on people as and talents and talent retention um, as, as their core asset. And you've got private equity firms hiring HR, internal HR people to just think about that within the portfolio. So well, I, really I mean, look, think- and, and sorry, right, I was going to say, and again, one thing that people won't know probably uh, is that Aon, there's, there's, there are two of the leading compensation, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of things to, to, to talent management and talent development. In the private equity industry, of course, compensation is, 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 is understandably and rightly a, a very central part of it. So Aon has two businesses, one called Radford and one called McLagan. They are two leading compensation consulting and compensation data businesses. In fact, McLagan is probably recognized in the general partner in the, in the PE community as being the leading private equity compensation consultant in the world. We know we build many of the many of the MIPS, many of the GP carry uh, plans. They come through McLagan Insight. But again, Aon in the past, culturally, McLagan would have been run as a very independent business, delivering its value to its clients in a, in a slightly isolated way. The way that the firm has been reorganized in the last few years is, is around what we call Aon United. Um, which is really about bringing the whole of the firm to the clients. And the fact that we have people who are delivering compensation and talent advice to a, num- a large number of PE funds, actually, you then think about it really interestingly. How can you maximize compensation, particularly through carry, of your general partner practitioners through the ever-increasing adoption of innovative solutions and innovative financing structures, right? So those things are linked as well. We can help you maximize returns in your portfolio companies, which then drive your compensation structure that we've helped you put in place, by the way, through these ideas over here. So these things are not all, you know, individually uh, separate from each other. They are all intertwined. You know, we can by delivering you, by helping you get, you know, a, 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 a premier, a first class um, compensation structure that's going to allow you to attract the right talent. We can also then allow that, enable that talent to maximize that framework through innovative solutions and, and ideas that we're, you know, we think we're pioneering. Great. Um, I've got a couple of other COVID-y things on my list. Um, one thought I had was supply chains, which I assume is relatively, you know, bread and butter for insurance services, but it's kind of, um, it's it's on speed at the moment, isn't it? Because global supply chains and international relations and protectionism is is uh, kind of it's not in a good place it's highly uncertain let's say yeah look so um i mean that's a critical it's a critical uh, factor one of the most important parts of the insurance world which is probably overlooked is uh, there's two areas but one is um business interruption insurance that's come under the real spotlight as a result of covid i mean let's be honest and and not necessarily the most positive spotlight you know, and, and we'll see how that all plays out, hopefully positively for, for, for policyholders who have valid claims. Um, but I think that has then opened up, you know, people in our industry have been talking about supply chain risk for a long time. I think what COVID has done is accelerate that. Um, and now there really are needs for firms to really, truly understand their supply chain, but not just because of the, the revenue and the, and the financial risk, but also increasingly through an ESG lens as well. You know, modern slavery, uh, background checking, all of these sorts of things are really important in the supply chain. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely uh, only going to go one way. Um, I've written a couple of things down from your uh, preamble, but I can't quite read my writing. Judgment preservation insurance. Is that right? What's that? Yeah. So that's a that's a new area we've developed over the last uh, year or so. So we've invested heavily in, in our litigation risk group. So there again. There is a theory, a thesis that 
we would like clients to see litigation as a potential asset rather than just something they unfortunately have to go through. If you're bringing a claim against somebody um, and you believe you're going to win, um, and more than that, perhaps you've won at the first court or the second court of uh, their tier of court, we've developed a product which will enable you to ensure as much of that judgment as you can and in the event that it progresses to the next layer and you lose, then the insurance provides you that, that capital. And here's the thing that, that, that's really exciting. So we just closed a deal for a client who had won um, a judgment against a large US firm, um, significant judgment. And we were able to secure several hundred million dollars of insurance, which by the, by the way, was not the total amount of the judgment award. It was a, 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 substan a substantial tranche of it, but, but by no means a majority. We were able to secure a a several hundred million dollars of judgment preservation insurance, which very simply said, in the event that this is overturned, you are going to be indemnified by the insurance company. And that's nice to have, right? But here's the really positive and interesting thing. That firm was then able to use the judgment preservation insurance to access third-party financing. So the insurance became collateral to access financing. So you could argue that what we did there was litigation funding has become a big thing, right? Litigation financing has been around a long time. It's absolutely got a place. It, it, it provides a very essential service, but this is potentially, we are introducing new ideas, which potentially are alternatives to that. Uh, arguably again, at a lower cost of capital, um, and that's super exciting, right? So we are, we brought people in a bit like we brought people in on the cyber side from outside the industry. We've hired people in our firm from litigation funders and litigators who understand that world. And what we're really doing is using their knowledge and insight with our capability of, of building insurance structure, insurance instruments and structured products to, to redefine how, in, how clients can, can see, find value in those sort of situations and see them as assets. Yeah, when you're in a private equity context and every every moment counts, it's the distraction I would imagine more than anything. You know, you just want that. You don't want it as a standing board item, do you? When you're trying to grow a business fast. Listen, exactly right, and certainly when you're coming to exit, right? What you do not want is uncertainty over you know litigation at exit. So we do a significant amount of wrapping up litigation, like we do with in the tax world, where look, you know, you've got contingent litigate what you know what insurance is very good at ross is is wrapping is bridging low probability but high financial risk situations into certainty right and of course that costs money which is the premium um but that's what insurance can be very good at and if you can you can we do that in, in, increasingly with tax you know some brilliant advisors around the world will tell clients this should be fine what you get from the big four what you get from the lawyers is We've done this before. This should be fine. What you don't know is whether someone on the other side of a deal table to you has the same view. Maybe they are a large conservative strategic. Maybe it's the first time they've done a deal in that jurisdiction. Whatever their motivations are for feeling the risk, the perception of the risk is different to your perception of a risk. And those are the sorts of things that can derail deals, right? They can get, they can, they, you know, they, they become distractions from actually, this is fundamentally a good business we want to buy here but we're getting distracted by negotiating and arguing over whether we think this one piece of litigation is more or less likely to happen or more or less likely to cost this amount of money, right? And insurance can deal with those situations by giving you a, well, we can tell you it will cost you this to take this issue away. Now, either that cost makes sense in the context of the deal or it doesn't, but at least it gives you something, a point of certainty which you can get a resolution on. And that's becoming much more understood and that's relevant in tax. And again, look, we now, we just added a, a, a hire in Paris from uh, one of the big four. We've had a hire in the Netherlands, one of the big four. We've got an ex-investment banking tax guy in Germany. So we're bringing, again, people who are career tax people. So they understand fact patterns and tax. And now what they're doing is they're building instruments to help clients have certainty over those fact patterns rather than you know, the, the, the strong should opinion that you'd get from your, your advisors, that insurance bridges it. And, and the same thesis goes for, for litigation as well. Um, and you could push further, by the way, without going too off piece into further adjacencies around structured credit. So the same broad thesis, Ross, applies in receivables financing. So one of the things COVID's done is really drive a 
real increase in the amount of receivables financing that go on in the market. And PE funds, again, adopters of new technology and new ideas, very uh, aggressively pursuing at tranches of re receivables financing in their, in their deals. What some, what many don't understand or appreciate is if you can wrap insurance around those receivables in an appropriate manner, you can de-risk that portfolio of receivables. If you're de-risking that portfolio of receivables, you can arguably lengthen the tenor and reduce the coupon on the financing terms you've got. So it's the same thesis, right? And just in a slightly different situation, all these things are, as I say, if I'm going to spend the pound, the euro, a dollar on an insurance instrument, where am I seeing the multiple upside or the positive upside of that expense somewhere else in my either enterprise value or my capital structure of a deal? So in, in many different areas, the insurance services are kind of rubbing up against the uh, traditional bank lending services in a complementary way, I suppose. Or you know, Yeah, I'd say complementary, right? There are some areas of, of overlap and competition, right? So if you look in, insurance industry has a tool called the surety bond. And in, an insurance surety bond, that broadly, with, with some you know, nuances, but broadly is the equivalent of a bank guarantee. It's just provided by an insurance company balance sheet, not a bank balance sheet. So, look, are they competitive? Theoretically, yes. Are there reasons why an insurance surety bond is more attractive than a bank guarantee in certain circumstances? Yes. Vice versa in others, right? Um, and actually, one of the interesting things we're working hard to do is raise the awareness of the potential for insurance instruments to actually positively impact uh, debt offerings from banks, right? I mean, now this is not just PE firms using it to negotiate better terms with the banks, but actually it potentially could be banks themselves using these ideas to differentiate in a highly competitive debt market why they're a better partner, debt partner than, you know, another mm. part firm. Because, you know, some of what banks do, you know, it, it, they, they do, it's almost accommodation, right? They, they, they know what they want, but they have to do some of these other instruments yeah. to get what they want and if there's a more efficient way of solving those other issues potentially by using insurance instruments then they're waking up to that idea as being value value for them as well yeah so i guess five years ago we would have spent most of the time talking about wni insurance yeah and we've not really come onto it but you mentioned at the start that it's really exploded in the last four to five years what why is that i look i think there's probably three or four main reasons one um just absolute dogged perseverance for people in our industry i mean i did my first one over 20 something years ago so dogged perseverance that this is a this is an instrument of value um uh, i think it is being uh, absolutely adopted as almost the norm in private equity exits um because it does it it, it solves the challenges of a private equity firm wanting to exit for you know condition free and a buyer wanting some sort of recourse, right? At the same time, potentially of, of absolving the management team of any post who may be rolling over of any post-closing um, exposure as well. So I think dogged perseverance. And then, like I said earlier, once people used it once, they then used it. Once it was in the toolkit, it, it was in the toolkit. And once it was established, it then became you know the norm. I think the other thing, Ross, that happened, it's been a brilliant pathfinder for us because it's given the M&A and private equity community confidence that the insurance industry can deliver, right? It can deliver inside an M&A context, in confidential environment, inside the timeframes and the pressures, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's unlocked and given confidence for a lot of the other areas we've been talking about. Um, and, and I think I saw a stat the other day saying that in 2020, eight in the US, 80% of private equity exits utilize some form of rep warranty or WNI insurance, right? So it's truly become a mainstream thing. I remember when I saw a Goldman's, I think it was 2019, they did a outlook for the 2019 year and Goldman Sachs in their however many 150 slide deck had one slide about WNI insurance. And that's when we knew we'd made it, right? Because it never would have been in a Goldman's deck, you know, three, four, five, 10 years ago. So, so it's just become a, a, a standard tool, um, but at the same time become a really great platform and pathfinder for these other ideas. Um, that we're talking about. Well, I think that probably rounds off our conversation quite nicely. I had an inkling that this was going to be an interesting topic, but I had no idea how kind of just vibrant and, and um, you know, diverse 
the insurance services industry had become genuinely. So it's been really interesting to hear about. Well, listen, thank you. And, and, and one thing I'm maybe just to close on is, you know, we've just been very fortunate to launch an advisory board. And, you know, we've got the likes of uh, Andrew Bullheimer, who's the former global managing partner of Allen and Overy, right? We've got a lady called Robin Lawther, who used to run FIG M&A banking at JP Morgan in Europe. We've got a guy called Claudio Fesser, who is senior partner emeritus from McKinsey and ran McKinsey on, in Switzerland. Yeah, these people, I mean, honestly, people, these people didn't come to us to help us deliver more W&I insurance and insurance due diligence to our clients, right? They came because of all these things we're talking about, and they're, they're excited about helping us you know, develop these things further and bring them alive uh, and, and make them more real for as many as many um, clients as we possibly can. I think that's the most recent piece of validation of, of we're going in the right direction. So do you have a, um, you know, classic CEO, this is where we want to be in five years? What does what does A on M&A look like in a couple of years down the line? So look, I do. And, and I had that four years ago when I started back at Aon. Um, and, and we're nearly there in spite of COVID. Um, I mean, look, we're living in the middle of the hottest market we've seen in, in a long time. Um, and we'll see how long that lasts. But I think I still think we're scratching the surface in terms of the value we can bring to our clients. Um, if I'm really harsh on, on ourselves, which I often are, too much of the time we, are, we still are delivering one or two of our core traditional value propositions into a deal. And actually, if we just paused and and delved a little deeper into the deal or had the right conversation in the right way at the right time, there are multiple of opportunities that we have left. We have allowed our clients to leave value on the table because we haven't been either able to identify or able to articulate how we could find a way to help them to, to find that value and bring that value off the table. So that's really the key thing. I think we've grown enormously in the last three to four years. There is still huge white space for us, we think, because there's just we're very fortunate. We've got an incredible breadth of services um, and we're backed up by this incredible ability to bring capital to bear in a way which hasn't, hasn't happened before. And, and honestly, we're scratching the surface. Alistair, thanks so much for your thoughts and for coming on to Fund Shack. Listen, thank you so much for having us, Ross. It's been great. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.